Again, no opening this week. We've got a lot to cover, so I'm just going to jump into it. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 50, Becoming Human. In our first episode, we got an ever-so-brief peek into what life must have been like for Homo sapiens before they had language. This came from Helen Keller's amazing autobiography, when she described what it was like before she learned language. Helen described herself as living without either a will or an intellect, being carried along by what she termed a blind natural impetus. She described her world as a no world, in which she felt only emotions such as anger, satisfaction, and desire. Language has allowed humanity to move past this no world into the world we all inhabit today, a world of thought, objects, and memory. Yet, something we perhaps don't keep in mind often enough, Helen's no world persists with us today. Our neocortex is the part of our brain that scientists like to say is what distinguishes humans from all other animals. Yet, below our neocortex, deep within our unconscious, lies our limbic system, the midbrain system that we share with all other mammals and that generates our emotions, is still with us today. This part of our brain has no language. It operates in the unconscious part of our brain, and simply sees or senses and responds. Helen described a life completely governed by these limbic-generated emotions. This same limbic system that was generating Helen's emotions, that is, her blind natural impetus, continues to generate emotions for us as well. The difference is the degree to which we mediate these emotions with our neocortex. Language has given us the ability to do so. The question for us is, to what degree do we choose to do so? For example, a driver cuts us off on the road. We feel a surge of anger coming up from our midbrain. Do we choose to dampen our anger and move on, or do we choose to give full vent to our anger? It's our neocortex that gives us this choice. Our first genetic Homo sapien ancestors were carnivorous, or at least omnivorous. At any rate, they apparently operated as all social carnivores do. They organized themselves into relatively small, largely familial tribes. Remember that, according to geneticists, we've all descended from one Homo sapien male, known as Y. Adam, and one Homo sapien female, known as mitochondrial Eve. These early Homo sapiens, themselves the product of millions of years of evolution, had genetically selected against the trait of proactive aggression, which makes us aggressive towards those in our in-group, and had selected for reactive aggression, that is, aggression directed at those in our out-group. At one level, you can see all of human history, since the agricultural revolution, as one long, very slow process of overcoming our predisposition toward responding to outgroups with reactive aggression. It's not that we've bred this tendency out of us, but rather that we've learned to socialize ourselves to overcome our tendency toward reactive aggression with the help of our neocortex, just as we use our neocortex to tamp down our tendency toward road rage. Still, this reactive aggression 
has been with us all along. And our predisposition to fear outgroups and enter into conflicts with them has been with us throughout our journey. It's what we've been calling the prime historical driver. We know that it's possible to overcome this reactive aggression because numerous anthropologists have told us about the gentle, caring indigenous populations they've studied. If these anthropologists are to be believed, the tendency we see to mock and bully those who aren't in our in-group seems to be largely a post-agrarian phenomenon. It was something that hunter-gatherers with no infrastructure for jails and a legal system couldn't afford, so they socialized it out of their tribal members from an early age, and socialized in being kind, humble, and gentle. Numerous indigenous peoples have shown us that children, growing up with this kind of socialization, grow up to be kind, humble, and gentle adults. Are we doing this now? Sadly, no. As we noticed in episode 40, there's an epidemic of bullying among school-age kids right now. Somewhere between 40 and 60% of teenagers report having experienced some kind of cyberbullying, and even more report that rumors have been spread about them online. 87% of teens have seen cyberbullying occur. Over half the students that identify as LGBTQ have experienced cyberbullying. These are astounding numbers. What are we doing about it? There are certainly anti-bullying campaigns out there, but nothing close to the socialization that we would need to begin at an early age to socialize our children, to have the compassion for others that would make such bullying unthinkable. So if we were socialized to be such kind, gentle people during our 200 millennia hunter-gatherer phase of human history, what happened to us that we would allow our children to bully somewhere around half of the children they go to school with today? The answer, we've seen, occurred with the advent of agriculture and the establishment of towns. Anthropologists think that most hunter-gatherer tribes were somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people or so. This is a group small enough to have a personal relationship with each tribal member. Even the largest tribes, of about 100 people or so, that would sometimes happen in very fertile areas, were small enough for each member to know all other members individually, not so with towns of perhaps 10,000 people. In such large groups, individuals couldn't know everybody, so they formed smaller social groupings in which they could know everyone in their group. When this happens, it seems that it's our nature to find our own tribe within the larger social grouping, and to treat those outside of our personal grouping, at least in part, and react to them with at least some reactive aggression. When we lived in hunter-gatherer tribal units, everyone had to be involved in either hunting or gathering food. In addition, almost all such cultures seemed to be very egalitarian. That is, pretty much everyone in the tribe was equal with everyone else. Women may or may not have had different statuses depending on the tribe involved. This all changed when we developed agriculture. With agriculture came a surplus in which some members of society didn't have to be involved in the production of food. This allowed society to stratify. Some became rulers, some nobles, and some were members of a priestly class. As agricultural technology and practices improved over the centuries and millennia, 
there became more and more agricultural surplus, allowing people to engage in more and more professions other than farming, animal husbandry, ruling, nobility, and being priests. Society separated itself into ever finer gradients of class. With Western culture using the convention of the great chain of being to explain how all gradients of society's hierarchy fit together, with one class above or below all other classes. It's worth pausing to note here that all of humankind's discoveries and conventions, its language more than any other, it has allowed us to make the great strides that we've taken. Yet with all things, language is both a blessing and a curse. It allowed Newton to write the Principia. Kant to write the critique of pure reason, and humans to build great cities, put a man on the moon, and explore the cosmos. But it also serves as a medium for us to make up the myriad stories that we invent in endless iterations about other people, like God has ordained this class above that class. Untouchables are vile and cannot be allowed in towns or villages with respectable people, and we need to invade Iraq because they have WMD. As we noted before, if a pride of lions had language, they would tell themselves things like, see that lion coming into our territory? He's not one of us. He wants to kill our gazelle, take our food, and displace us. We must attack him and run him off, or he'll displace us, and we won't have any food or territory of our own. But lions don't have language, so they don't make up these stories. They just attack the newcomer because they fear non-pride lions. No stories needed. They feel fear, so they attack him. Perhaps this is a much more honest approach. But with our language, we humans make up endless stories about outgroups, why they're bad, and why we're justified in bullying them, exiling them, or attacking them verbally or physically. If language is humanity's greatest single leap forward, Writing is, if not number two, definitely somewhere in the top ten. We wouldn't be able to create the first writing systems until we lived in cities of perhaps 10,000 or so during the agricultural era. Put 10,000 people together in cities like Uruk, in the land of Sumer, modern Iraq, and allow them to engage in the commerce that will be inevitable for such a large collective of people living together and the result will be a massive, functioning, dynamic system. The most notable feature of systems, of course, for us, is their tendency to lead to emergence. You have a system functioning along with thousands and thousands of nodes, in our case, personal interactions, and what ultimately occurs is the emergence of an entirely new phenomenon, unplanned and dissimilar in nature from the thousands of transactions that occurred within the system at any particular node or personal transaction. As mentioned, in ancient Sumer, writing was initially used for the purpose of recording commercial transactions. Yet the value of writing soon became obvious, and writing became a tool for correspondence, recording a city's history, writing down stories such as Gilgamesh, and numerous other purposes. What we've noticed about historical systems is that the emergences that come from them are generally the reflections of the inputs that go into the system. When the historical system is humming along during good economic times, people are prosperous, 
and the country is headed in a positive direction, the resulting emergences will be like the reforms of the progressive era. Workers' compensation, the 19th Amendment providing women the right to vote, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, and so on. Or the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Gemini and Apollo programs that ended up putting Americans on the moon in 1969. When historical systems are filled with the angry inputs of times of great unrest or end dynastic periods, especially during bad economic times, political discord and backsliding back down history's outer wheel, revolt and revolution are often the outcomes. On our journey to here, we pause to look at ancient Rome. We noted that there was nothing particularly noteworthy about this small, self-governing city in the Italian peninsula up until 509 BC, when it chose to adopt a republican form of government, something that was almost unique in the world among agricultural populations at the time. It took a few centuries, but we watched as the chaos of having to convince an entire voting electorate of the wisdom of this or that piece of legislation eventually led to sensible and prudent laws and decisions more often than not. This was as opposed to the dynastic style of ruling that was most popular on earth at the time. Our brief tour through Chinese history showed us this could lead to great leaders who could create thriving dynasties initially, but, inevitably, would lead to poor kings or emperors who could lead to the end of the dynasty, sometimes in a single lifetime. The dynamic system created by the Republican Roman government led to an empire that stretched across most of the Mediterranean world at the time. Still, in one of history's repeating themes, too much affluence can lead to a lack of strong character that created a thriving state to begin with and, ultimately, allegiance to a particular leader, not the state. In Rome, this meant allegiance to Caesar and not Rome and making him dictator for life. Though Caesar was assassinated by senators who lamented the loss of the republican form of government, it was too late. The damage had been done, and the Roman Republic became an empire, ruled by an emperor. Still, Rome had a couple more things to teach us. That a dynasty in decline can be resurrected and once again put on good footing by exceptional leadership in Rome's case, Caesar Augustus. Still, people of weak moral fiber live by a different moral code than their ancestors who lived by a stronger moral code and created their state. Emperor Nero found the way to spend more money than he had, simply to base the Roman currency. Emperor after emperor after Nero would follow his example. When Nero donned the purple toga, the Roman denarius, was 94% silver. After 200 years of debasement, it was 0.02% silver. There was little left to debase. So when the barbarians began to invade Rome, Rome had no reserves to fall back on to raise armies to defeat them. Thus began Rome's long decline into oblivion. In trying to figure out where a country is likely headed, trying to predict the next historical emergence, has all the difficulties that large, complex historical systems have. In doing so, we always look at the historical drivers. 
One constant driver throughout human history is always the more basic animalistic side of human nature, the drives that come from our limbic brain. The part of our brain Helen Keller described so vividly way back in episode one. The selfish brain that cares only about fulfilling its food, sexual, and emotional desires. In contrast, our prefrontal cortex regulates this raw, selfish emotion. In our efforts to regulate our limbic emotions, we've had some great leaders that have given us various paths by which we can do so and ultimately create a much more compassionate humanity. Leaders like Lao Tzu, the Buddha, and Jesus. As we noted, all of the great religions of the world, with the exception of Islam, came to us in what we've called the First Axis, or in what's commonly known as the Axial Age. These religions gave humanity the framework within which they saw and understood the world. But the creators of these religions set a high bar, too high for most of their adherents. As people never tire of pointing out, all of the world's major religions have a version of the Golden Rule. Yet few followers of any religion consistently treat all people as they would like to be treated themselves. Still, we've noticed humanity getting closer and closer to this aspiration over the centuries. When the Roman Empire fell, we saw how a people could create a working economy with no functioning mint or any significant amount of cash. England, and Europe as a whole, created the feudal system in which those with land could obligate those without to pay them a certain amount of their harvest and a certain number of days' labor each year. More significantly, for those at the bottom, a weakened political system meant serfdom instead of slavery. Though serfs weren't free, they had significantly more freedom than slaves. This meant that, for over a thousand years, until serfdom was finally completely abolished by Queen Elizabeth I in 1574, all those at the very bottom of English society were able to have their own home, keep a certain amount of their produce, and even amass a modicum of their own wealth, even if they couldn't move off the land and still owed their lords their feudal dues. Yet the outer wheel of history often runs in reverse before it takes another revolution forward. With Europe's discovery of sugar cane and its cultivation in the Caribbean and South America, along with the great human desire for sweets and the need for a population genetically selected for working in the brutal tropical climate, Europe once again lowered its mores against slavery. I'm not a slavery historian, but I argue this was the most brutal form of slavery yet devised. Dark-skinned, hunter-gatherer, non-Christian Africans were a total outgroup. Not only that, but the slavery required to grow sugarcane occurred on the other side of the globe from England, France, and the other enslaving nations. With all of this, somehow, slavery was much easier to justify. Still, Bartolomé de las Casas showed us that we have a compassion switch. Cultural practice can turn on this compassion switch, and we can be immune to the suffering of others, to the extent of positively enjoying seeing the suffering of outgroups. But as Delis Causas demonstrated, 
Eventually, some people will wake up and feel compassion for the suffering of others, even outgroups. Compassion for others, at first, spreads slowly among majority populations, but, bit by bit, picks up steam as more people begin to feel compassion for the oppressed. What started with a few who were seen as offbeat or oddballs, advocating for the end of oppression of a minority, or for the right of women to vote or whatever, eventually turns into a full-on social movement. And so it was when France outlawed slavery in 1794, England in 1807, and America after an all-out civil war in 1865. America had come so far in compassion for its erstwhile slave population, but, as its long acceptance of black lynching and the KKK showed, it still had very far to go. It was roughly around the time the first slaves were being delivered to Virginia that René Descartes published his Discourse on Method, in which he declared, I think, therefore I am. In other words, all mankind has, up to this point, defined themselves in relation to some larger cosmos. But I'm going to define myself by who I am, what I am capable of, as a person in and of myself. In this sense, we're all Cartesian today. That is, we think like Descartes. Descartes was still a good Catholic, but he was just taking the first steps into what we called the second axis. The first axis was the age from 500 down to perhaps the time of Christ. Western history professors have dubbed the period, filled with great philosophers roughly beginning with Descartes' Discourse on Method, the Enlightenment. A course on Enlightenment philosophy would cover the thought of philosophers like Condorcet, Montesquieu, Voltaire, Rousseau, Hume, Locke, Smith, Newton, Kant, and others. Such a course would cover a wide range of great ideas of these philosophers. But for our purposes, these philosophers rethought the world we live in, just as the religious leaders in the first axis rethought the world they lived in. What this meant for the West was that, for the first time, we saw the world through a secular lens, not a religious one. It's for this reason I think this period deserves the moniker the second axis, as it provided us with a framework through which we saw the world and the morality we ascribed to up until the 1960s. If we had more time, we would have dug deeper into what I have termed our pre-capitalist stage. This is the period that's popularly called the early modern period, the period between the late Middle Ages and the Industrial Revolution. A lot of great history happened during this time, including wars, the rise of enlightened monarchies, and so on, which are all commonly very heavily studied. What's less popularly studied are the economic systems that grew up during this period. Suffice it to say that this period, the period I've termed the pre-capitalist period, led to the rise in trade and market systems that would allow capitalism to thrive during the Industrial Revolution, once Thomas Newcomen and James Watt had invented and perfected the steam engine. The Industrial Revolution did much more than provide us with material wealth. It provided an incredibly integrated international world, 
a system with untold millions of nodes that allowed people to interact in new and much more complex ways than they ever had before. With a system this complex and dynamic, the opportunity for historical emergences went into overdrive. These emergences only accelerated with increasing industrialization, transportation first with the steam engine, then the internal combustion engine, and increasing communication, first with the telegraph, then with the telephone. And the historical emergences came fast and furious. In a world so largely driven by the prime historical driver, our wars were both frequent and increasingly bloody. The Napoleonic Wars, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, Bleeding Kansas, the Civil War, the Indian Wars, the Sino-Japanese War, the Spanish-American War, the Boxer Rebellion, the Russo-Japanese War, World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Spanish-American War, the Wars of Japanese Aggression in East Asia, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. So many millions and millions were killed in these wars as our technologies became deadlier and deadlier. And this is not an exhaustive list of 19th and 20th century wars by any means. In addition to wars, there were many emergences that showed how reactive aggression was still alive and well in Western society. Russian-Jewish pogroms, Belgian atrocities in the Congo, lynchings in the KKK in the American South, Stalin-initiated famines in the Ukraine, the Gulag Archipelago, Japanese comfort women brothels during World War II, the rape of Nanking, the Armenian Genocide, the Cambodian killing fields, North Korea's secret Gulag, and so many more. Still, as we've seen, history's outer wheel, despite numerous stops and misstarts, and outright reversals, has always progressed in a generally forward direction. And during these two centuries, humanity's examples of compassionate emergences were too numerous to count. The abolition of slavery almost everywhere in the world. The abolition of blood sports around the world. The decline and fall of Western imperialism. The global spread of democracy. Women's suffrage. Not only in the U.S., but around much of the world. The rise of international diplomacy the rise in the status of women in general, all of the societal advances of the progressive era, and so many more, too numerous to count. But the glacially slow outer wheel of history has turned into a hot rod. It's safe to say there have been far more advances and protections for societies overlooked, poor, disenfranchised, hungry, and oppressed in the last 200 years than there were in the last 200 millennia. Then we watched as the U.S., following World War II, reached a position that no other country in the history of the world had attained. All the other warring countries had devastated each other's economies and infrastructures. America, however, was virtually untouched by the war and left with a thriving economy and nuclear weapons. We were alone at the top of the great chain of nations. We were untouchable. The only country at that point in the history of the world immune from a threat from foreign nations. 
the Marshall Plan and the Japanese Reconstruction were paradigm-changing. They showed that compassion and generosity to one's erstwhile enemies turned enemies into friends and allies. FDR had cultivated a close relationship with Stalin during the course of the war. Stalin was very paranoid and ultimately turned into a brutal and ruthless dictator and bitter Cold War enemy. Yet his ruthlessness was caused by his paranoia. Would the world have seen a different Stalin if the U.S. had treated the USSR like it did Germany and Japan rather than as an enemy? Could the U.S. have led the way to a new world order in which we began to move past the reactive aggression that had governed human behavior for the past 200 millennia? We'll never know. As we noted in episode 33, FDR died, leaving us Harry Truman as president. Truman was not all that bright compared to those in top positions of power. He chose to listen to his more reactionary advisors and used the power of his office to bully people like the Russian foreign minister. He responded to the USSR with fear and reactive aggression and led our nation to do likewise. By the time Eisenhower became president, the USSR had the bomb and Truman had changed it from a close wartime ally into a bitter Cold War enemy. We missed our chance to overcome our outgroup reactive aggression paradigm. So we marched on through the 1950s and 60s. We'd learned during the last couple decades of the 19th century what it was like to live in a country without a thriving middle class and dominated by a small class of super-rich. Post-World War II America changed its tax code to disfavor the accumulation of massive amounts of wealth by a very few and favor the growth of a middle class. In doing so, we discovered what we've called in this podcast the magic of a middle class economy. That is, when the tax code favors mass accumulation of wealth among a very few, as it did in the Gilded Age, you get a class of super wealthy who do what the wealthy always do with their money. They save it, taking it out of circulation. In contrast, in a middle-class-based economy, the middle class spends the bulk of their money, keeping it in circulation, buying cars, boats, houses, going to the hairstylist, concerts, taking vacations, and all kinds of other things that create more middle-class jobs. Beginning in 1980, however, we began our 40-year experiment with reconfiguring our tax code once again to favor the super-rich. No surprise. This did what it did in the Gilded Age. It gave us a small class of super-rich, a shrunken middle class, and a subclass of very poor that now live on the streets, mostly in our large cities. So Truman squandered our opportunity to work toward an international order not dominated by reactive aggression towards countries seen as outgroups. It turns out that this was not a problem. We were given a second chance. Throughout the Cold War, the USSR would try to match the U.S. in economic and military might. Sadly for them, it turns out that Adam Smith was right. Capitalism works. There is just no way the USSR's authoritarian command economy could keep up with our modern capitalist economy. The USSR fell in December 1991. At that point, China was not a significant military threat to the U.S. This time, 
is George Bush Sr.'s turn to have a chance at promoting a new world order. Focus not on outgroup aggression, but on diplomacy and cooperation. Bush Sr. has come off significantly better in this podcast than Truman. But his road to the presidency led through being director of the CIA. He was just not temperamentally attuned to seeing the world in anything other than adversarial terms. Opportunity number two was squandered. Heaven's Gate and other cults have shown us that there is no belief so outrageous that humans can't believe it if properly groomed. Now there's a whole television network, plus untold neoconservative talk show hosts and websites dedicated to grooming a generation to deny science, ignore the rule of law, and refuse to accept the peaceful transition from one lawfully elected president to the next. The response to our last presidential election was deeply disturbing. But the question is, what will they do next election, with four more years of grooming, should they not win again? Remember when I said that institutions that have always been with humans are seen as just being part of humanity? There had always been slavery. It was God's ordained order. It had always been that way. It would always be that way. Right? Yes. Well, until there was no more slavery. Then it just wasn't part of the human condition anymore. Our families bound its daughter's feet for untold generations. It'll always be that way, right? Well, again, yes, until we realized that torturing and crippling our daughters just wasn't such a great idea. There are thousands of examples of humanity crossing such milestones. We now approach an interesting point in history where such a milestone is within reach. That is, it would be interesting if the stakes weren't so high. Remember what I said back in episode 21, that history is a wheel within a wheel. The inner wheel spins round and round. It goes from new dynasty rise to dynasty decline and fall to new dynasty rise again. It's a pattern that mankind has repeated over and over again since we developed sedentary agricultural societies. The outer wheel moves ever forward in a more compassionate direction with stops and starts and even partial reversals along the way. We've become ever more humane over the last 10 millennia or so, since our adoption of agriculture and learning to live with each other in large cities and in states. We've even called this becoming more human. Now we face a conjunction where both the inner and outer wheels of history are poised to take a step forward. In the inner wheel, the wheel in which dynasties or countries rise and fall, we watched as Trump loyalists, who truly believed he won the election, despite overwhelming evidence showing that there was no election fraud, took over the Capitol on 1-6 in a violent insurrection. For the first time ever in American history, Americans attacked our Capitol, killing police in order to take it over in their attempt to prevent the transfer of power from one lawfully elected president to the next. 
They did this because they had been groomed for years and years. Think they haven't been on even more radical websites since then? Think Fox has turned down its rhetoric? Think Trump is out of commission because those of us who listen to mainstream media don't hear him on a daily basis? Think he's not grooming his base with ever more radical conspiracy theories? Think again. After four more years of grooming, we'll have an ever more radicalized cohort of Trump loyalists ready to vote again in 2024. I've wondered if Trump will win the Republican nomination next go-around. As the only president in well over 100 years to lose re-election during an economic upswing, his loss was stunning, and Americans are notoriously unforgiving of losers. But there he is, still arguing to his believers that he really won the election. Despite losing all 61 lawsuits, he filed to prove there was voter fraud. So far, he's got a strong, loyal following that continues to believe his big lie. Proving Heaven's Gate was not just a fluke. His followers were well-organized, more than ready to use violence to achieve their ends, and they will be more radicalized next time. And who are his supporters? Largely, they're us boomers, the prodigal generation, with a strong sprinkling of Gen Xers thrown in. Whether the Republican nominee in 2024 is Donald Trump or someone even more radical, there exists, at least at this point, a strongly radicalized, angry, and well-armed cohort of true believers that's more than willing to use violence to achieve their political ends. This is the inner wheel of history taking one more revolution forward. This is how dynasties or democracies end. Think we're out of the woods and there's no way we could face an insurrection that could mean the end of our democracy? Think again. This is end dynasty historical emergence, trying to break through the inner wheel of history at its lowest ebb. On the other hand, history is complex and we live in complicated times. Our axial generations, the millennials and Gen Z, as well as those Gen Xers who have thrown their lot in with the axials, are poised to move the outer wheel of history forward. This is our third chance to move forward and create a new world order. And this isn't just another revolution. This is the revolution that history has been pointed toward since the first hunter-gatherers said, hey, maybe we shouldn't sacrifice our human captives. Perhaps we should show them some compassion. Back in episode 43, I argued that history follows the same general rules as natural selection. Natural selection works when an individual is born to a species with some genetic modification that gives it an advantage. This advantage makes it more successful at survival and procreation and allows it to pass its genes to the next generation at higher rates. These higher rates of survival mean that, eventually, a population with a new genetic modification takes over and becomes the new norm within the species or perhaps even creates a new species. So it is with cultural selection. A cultural meme begins that speaks to our inner humanity, our compassion. Hey, Jim Crow isn't right. Separate is not equal. African Americans deserve all the civil rights that whites enjoy. 
This meme spreads with the constant work of champions like W.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells until we see an historical emergence grow out of this simple meme and the civil rights movement is born. It works this way because our limbic emotions are strong. The pull to hate those who oppose us is powerful. Our bullying gene calls us to oppress those who are weaker than us. Anxiety and fear cause us to alienate outgroups, and the prime historical driver causes us to see outgroups all around us. But there's been a secret historical driver all along human compassion. It's my argument that this is the emotion that makes us human. This is what game theory taught us. If you were nerdy enough to read Robert Axelrod's masterwork, The Evolution of Cooperation, we get a very strong kick or reward from our limbic emotions when we hate, oppress, or bully someone. Our reward from our sense of compassion is perhaps not as strong, but over the long run, we get more of a benefit from being compassionate toward others than we do from fearing, hating, or oppressing them. The secret historical driver has been active throughout human history. It's made modern society unbelievably more humane than, say, ancient Sparta, where a small number of elites brutally oppressed the vast majority of all who lived in that ancient Greek state. But ever since the first cells began dividing in some primeval early Earth swamp, evolution had a goal, an ultimate end that none of its pre-human species would ever grok. Humanity, or at least some very intelligent species that would be able to develop language and accomplish mastery over all the other beings on the Earth. If you look at the evolution of Earth over the eons, you'll see an ever greater movement toward larger and larger brains that have given their respective species advantage over less intelligent species. So it has been with cultural selection. Our limbic emotions and our fear of outgroups are very strong drivers for us. But while they feel good and may benefit an individual who defeats his or her foe, or perhaps even one group that subjugates a warring outgroup, they don't benefit humanity as a whole. As we noted in episode 19, there's another side to history. The side that brings us together. The side that makes us care for one another. It's the side that benefits humanity as a whole. That makes our world a better place to live. That gives hope and comfort to the least of society's denizens. That makes us more human. This is the message of Nero's Fiddle. This podcast is our letter to the Axials. History has been moving toward an end ever since the first Homo sapiens. The groundwork has been laid. The goal line is there within reach. It's up to you whether you decide to pick up the ball and cross the final goal or not. Truman wasn't the man for the job. Bush Sr. wasn't temperamentally attuned for it. It's our belief that the Axial generation is. There are many of us in the prodigal generation that will support you in your efforts. But sadly, as in any great contest, there are many of us who will oppose you. And, of course, a minority scattered throughout the younger generations as well. Since we prodigals were young, we've watched Dirty Harry and all the thousands of vigilante flicks that have followed. 
The greatest generation's hero was John Wayne, who stood for truth, justice, and the rule of law. Our prodigal's heroes have always been Dirty Harry and those who see themselves above the law, those who take the law into their own hands. For too many of us, our great belief in individualism has led us to see our highest calling as doing whatever we think is right, the law be damned, as the one-six insurgents have shown. Too many of us prodigals have been groomed to believe that science is a lie, that climate change is a hoax. It's these prodigals that stand between you axials and the goal line. So far, the axials haven't heard their call, but the prodigals have, and they're fighting against the forces that would stop climate change with all their might. Again, however, the stakes are too high. Sitting on our hands and continuing life as normal means giving in to the prodigals. The consequences of failing to stop climate change is a post-global warming climate apocalypse of ecosystem collapses and unprecedented social disasters. Again, we cross a line toward getting ever closer to a runaway greenhouse effect that we won't be able to come back from when we reach 1.5 degrees centigrade global warming. We're more than two-thirds of the way there now. We won't be able to avoid getting to 1.5 degrees when we're 90% of the way there. The stakes have never been higher for humanity. We have to stop our reliance on fossil fuels and carbon-based energy now. So here's our call to you axials and you prodigals who would join us. Pick up the ball. Move it across the goal line. Organize. March in the streets. Boycott. Sit in. Rally. Vote. Express yourselves early, often, and consistently. Create a new culture in which bullying is absolutely unacceptable. Period. Call in your mothers and fathers from the prodigal generation. Don't call them out. Calling out never changes anyone's mind. You are their children. Not everyone will join us, but we don't need everyone. Mostly, we need you and your energy. Stop seeing humanity in terms of in-groups and out-groups. Be the generations that achieve humanity's purpose. Understand where the goal line is. And, finally, after 200 millennia, overcome the in-group, out-group paradigm and become fully human. Let's learn the lesson of Jada's dream. Our in-group is not those of particular beliefs, races, or political parties, but rather all those of goodwill. When we realize that, we will fulfill the promise that humanity has always had. Future generations will look back and say, this is when we became fully human. With the better angels driver as the new prime driver of history, the historical emergences that humanity is capable of are unlimited. When you do this, when you overcome reactive aggression, when you adopt all people of goodwill as your in-group, you will be the axis upon which history will turn. No reading this week, just an assignment. Take a week to think. Humanity is about to change. We have no choice. Climate change will see to that. What will be your part? 
passively accept the ravages that climate change will bring to humanity, accept the prodigal apocalypse, or become part of the axis. See you next week.